Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Santa Barbara, California, which uh, actually Montecito, which is sort of unincorporated Santa Barbara. Uh, Weather is great. We're still, you know, we're still in this Corona thing. Uh, We're not getting as hit as hard as like Los Angeles and San Francisco and stuff. And a lot of people are therefore kind of moving into town for better or for worse. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still, uh, still kind of uh, tough. You still, you know, you can go outside and go to restaurants and stuff like that, but, uh, looks like schools are going to be closed and that, you know, that kind of sucks. Right. Uh, but anyway, uh, it is where we are in history. It'll be something, uh, for the ages, so to speak. We'll be, our children will be looking back to these days someday, the way we look at, uh, video footage and photos of, of, uh, the great depression. Well, listen, before we begin the topic of today's show, I do want to remind you that there is a website. The website is called wealthformula.com, and that website is important because it houses this podcast, and there's all sorts of additional resources available to you there, uh, such as you know free books and reports and webinars and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, if you're just listening to the podcast, you've never been to the website, go check it out. And it's also a good place to make sure that you sign up for various lists that you might be interested in, including our accredited investor club, which, uh, you know, right now we, uh, we're, we're still, we're still moving. We're still trucking. We still have some opportunities. Uh, we just did one, um, have another uh, really interesting opportunity coming up shortly. So if you are an accredited investor and you would like to be in the know, you join our network, you know, we're going to fill out some paperwork, a survey, have a conversation with me, make sure that you are, you know, someone who's sophisticated enough to participate in these kinds of things. And then we, and then, uh, then you can, can potentially participate. Anyway, let's get on with today's topic. And that, before we do that, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay, so this is back in the early 90s. I was a freshman uh, at Columbia University in New York. And frankly, at that point, uh, I wasn't very interested in the academic part of college, even though for some reason I was there. I was at an Ivy League university. Well, a lot of us didn't seem particularly interested in studies. Uh, You know, personally, I was too busy doing what a college kid might do after being dropped into Manhattan, after going to private school in Minnesota. You know, 
I was just, uh, I was having fun. Just, uh, you know, just probably, you know, not the healthiest fun in the world, but having fun. In fact, you know, I realized that college courses, particularly those ones that started in the morning, were starting to interfere uh, with my nocturnal lifestyle. So I started taking an increasing number of evening courses, and those evening courses were different. They did not have a lot of the younger students in them. They had, you know, some graduate students, or maybe they were, you know, whatever. They were, they, they were students who were older, more experienced, and these were more sort of highly focused courses. But for me, the most important thing at that point was that they were in the evening, and so I didn't have to wake up in the morning. I'm not kidding, by the way. This is really how I thought when I was 18 years old. Uh, in fact, I recall taking a political science class one time where I, uh, you know, I'm quite sure that I, I think I was the only freshman there. I mean, the lecturer was some fancy academic guy. He was famous, apparently. Everybody thought he was super cool. Um, they thought he was like, you know, the next big thing in political science, blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. I just knew it was an evening class. So, you know, these lectures, uh, these lectures that we had really were, you know, they were sort of by Socratic method in, in some regard in that they really were meant to create these spirited discussions, uh, which I found intimidating for a couple of reasons. One, of course, saying that I'm, you know, I was the youngest probably the youngest person in there with a bunch of grad students and journalism students and all that. Um, but also I was intimidated probably, well, frankly, because I rarely came to class adequately prepared myself with assigned readings, etc. So yeah, I'm painting a beautiful picture of myself, but that's kind of the way I was when I was 18 years old. And that's just the way it is. So I remember one, uh, one evening, uh, a lecture stirred an interesting idea in me. You know, I was actually listening to this lecture and, you know, the, the juices were flowing in it. I had this interesting idea and I really wanted to share it. But then again, I felt a little bit too intimidated to kind of, you know, raise my hand uh, and stand up in front of these, you know, older, uh, intellectually talented uh, students in the class. So instead, you know, we had these break times in the middle uh, these were longer classes and they would sometimes would take a, like a break, right? You know, like 30 minutes or 40 minutes into it or whatever. I don't know why. That's just what we did. And when that happened, uh, you know, people would sometimes go up, talk to the professor. So I, I did that. I went up there uh, halfway through during this intermission period. And I had this idea. I have no idea what it was. I just don't remember what I said, but... To my delight, the professor called my idea very interesting and something we ought to talk about. And, you know, you spoke to me like uh, I was a colleague, you know, like actually like I was a, you know, a smart person rather than this 18-year-old punk, which really is what I was. So I got, you know, I got a little uh, excited about that. I got a little bit of confidence. I was emboldened by my success. And so, you know, the next time, that there was an opportunity for me to interject myself into class and, and you know, give my smart idea. I wasn't going to just save it for the professor. I was going to do it in front of the whole class. So there was an occasion uh, that there was a discussion. Of course, this is back in the 90s. And that turned, uh, uh, you know, there was this um, question about back then, uh, uh, towards the Clinton administration stance on gays in the military. 
And, uh, you know, I was listening pretty closely, and there was a lively discussion, mostly focusing on this hot-button issue uh, on the effect of morale of the military and, you know, rights and so on. You know, and, and, and I was 18, and I didn't really watch the news, uh, I and I also didn't really care. I, I, I definitely am much more of a, um, a libertarian-minded person. I don't really care if somebody is gay or not gay or what. I don't care. So anyway, I raised up my hand, and for the first time in front of this fancy classroom, I stood up, I looked at this pack of people there, these heavyweights, and said, well, you know what? Here's here's a thought. Why do we even ask them if they're gay? Wouldn't it make sense just not to ask? Well, there was this odd silence. I remember it for a minute, and then two or three students reminded me quickly, sort of in hushed voices, to be polite of my uh, stupidity, that the Clinton administration had actually just passed what was known then as the don't ask, don't tell policy. So my genius about not asking was exactly what they'd done. And, and I, uh, well, anyway, I, I was uh, clearly uh, not feeling super sharp right about then. And after an uncomfortable moment uh, of that silence, I quickly sat down about as, as embarrassed as I've ever been in a public situation like that. Uh, the class you know, they were nice, but it, clearly they were briefly stunned by the profound ignorance that I displayed in that moment, wondering how I ever got into Columbia in the first place. Well, they continued their discussion where it had left off uh, before I'd rudely interrupted with my uh, my question. Anyway, I never did go back to that class, though. Uh, I, even though I was really profoundly embarrassed. Um, it wasn't too late to drop it, fortunately. There was a very liberal drop uh policy back then it didn't go on your record so uh why did i tell you that story anyway it came to mind because and i was thinking to myself you know i as you can tell i'm i'm uh i've got a lot of economists on the show and i'm i'm a big uh and i really enjoy learning about macroeconomics and that said with my medical background um you know this is a pretty steep learning curve and I, i feel like i've learned quite a bit uh, but trying to follow some of these theories initially, at least when you just come from a purely medical background or something like that, can be pretty humbling. Uh, and like I said, I've gotten better over the years. Um, I'm certainly no, um, certainly no economist myself, but I, I will tell you that I remember uh, where I was a few years ago, and I'm sensitive to the fact that you may be a super smart professional. You may be, um, well, I know there's, gosh, there's so many smart people who listen to this podcast who are you know, uh, various kinds of physicians or, you know, business people or, you know, whatever, uh, that requires tremendous intellectual ability, but you've never spent much time trying to learn, uh, or understand macroeconomics. It just hasn't been something you were thinking about. Meanwhile, uh, if you are listening to this podcast, it's probably likely that you listen to other podcasts within this ecosystem. And right now, you know, because of COVID-19, the potential fallout from, from COVID and the unprecedented fiscal monetary policy interventions that we're seeing. You hear about a lot of this lingo all the time. You're hearing a lot about, you know, theories of uh, what could happen next, et cetera. And so one of these theories that's really been circulating a lot out there uh, is called the dollar milkshake theory. And it is counter to some of the doom and gloom scenarios 
that are out there uh, about the U.S. economy, at least for the next, I would say, two or three years. And it's not necessarily the easiest thing to understand. So anyway, I got Brett Johnson, who was the guy who invented this theory, who wrote about it, talks about it. He's on the show this week. We're going to talk to him next. And he was nice enough to allow me to dumb this down so the even a surgeon could understand it. Anyway, we will have Brett on the show here in an interview to explain the milkshake theory after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Brent Johnson. Brent is the CEO and Portfolio Manager at Santiago Capital in San Francisco, uh, which he formed after a successful and lengthy career with private clients at Credit Suisse. Brent's dollar milkshake theory uh, has been circulating on the internet and on the podcast circuit, and he's here today to explain it and discuss it. Brent, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here and looking forward to speaking with you. Well, great. Thanks. You know, before we jump into the theory itself, you know, we have, you know, my listeners, people like me, right? maybe we're kind of smart because we went to med school or we, you know, we went to law school or whatever, but we may not be quite that sophisticated on, you know, the, the nuances of, of, you know, the financial markets that are going on right now. So do me a favor, give us a little bit of background on the economic situation, the situation with the markets that we're in as a country um, at sort of the macro one-on-one level that, sort of leads into your theory? Sure. Uh, well, so first of all, I would say that, uh, um, you know, I think it, it, everything I do, it's very, I start with a very big picture and then I drill down in more detail and more detail and more detail. So I'm very much a big picture person. And as, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, well, actually over the last, call it decade, you know, since the global financial crisis, uh, I've really dug deep into the macro world, meaning, and not only the macro world, which, which you know, for those who don't know, it's basically the, the big picture, the right. you know, country by country basis and interest rates. You're not necessarily looking at the balance sheet of an individual company, but looking at big overall trends and global, you know, global, uh, global, uh, you know, things that are ha- happening on, on a global basis. And as part of that, I really dug into, 
uh, central banking and the way the monetary system is designed to just kind of understand how money gets into the system, how it flows, why it flows, what are the different things that influence it. And, and, you know, in doing that, I started, I got into that probably about 2006 or 2007. I had kind of this fortuitous meeting, you know, when I was still at Credit Suisse Mm -hmm. and I, and I realized that all the people I thought were experts really weren't as smart as I thought that they were. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, since they couldn't give me the answers and and they would laugh at me if I asked these what I thought were good questions, but they thought were silly. Uh, so I basically had to go find the answers myself. And through through that whole process of self-discovery and self-education, I, 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 I got a better understanding of how the monetary system actually works. And I discovered that uh, the situation for the United States was not very good for lack of a better word. So I didn't, I didn't predict the global financial crisis, but I was ready for it when it happened. Now, subsequent to that, uh, the global financial crisis over the last 10 years, the central banks and the monetary authorities around the world have, for lack of a better word, flooded the market with liquidity. Um, Because it wasn't just the United States that was in trouble in the global financial crisis. It was kind of the whole world. And so over the last 10 to 12 years, we've seen the whole world, you know, reflate as they pumped liquidity into the markets, but with sporadic crises popping up, you know, every couple of years in different parts of the globe. Mm -hmm. And it was through that work that I kind of came to the, I initially thought that the dollar was in big trouble uh, because of the bad situation that the United States was in. And 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 in hindsight, I think I did really good analysis on the United States. And a lot of other people have done really good analysis on the United States. But what I discovered in probably 2016 was that while I had done fantastic, in my own opinion, analysis on the United States, mm-hmm. I, had, I had not done the same level of analysis on the rest of the world. And so I was kind of analyzing the United States in a vacuum. But the reality is, is we don't live in a vacuum. It's, it's a global world. It's a global market. You know, money doesn't just stay in the United States. It flows all over the world. And money that gets created in Germany doesn't just necessarily stay in Europe. It can flow with the United States or South America. And so when, and then the last thing you got to realize is that currencies, fiat currencies, fiat currencies are basically countries or, you know, uh, paper currencies that, that countries issue. These are not backed by anything. Uh, they're not backed by gold. They're not backed by oil. They're not backed by land. So it's really the the promise that the government, uh, the, the tax revenue of the citizens, um, that's what backs the currencies. And so what I realized while, while I had done good analysis on the U.S. dollar, I had not held the same level of critique to the other currencies. And the reality is, is that all these fiat currencies trade relative to each other. They don't trade on an absolute basis. They may trade on an absolute basis versus something like gold. But against each other, they trade on a relative basis. So if you have 10 people lined up and you're trying to pick out the smartest one, and, but they're all idiots, one of them is still going to be the smartest idiot, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, so, and, and so the smartest idiot is going to do better relative to the other nine. And when I started thinking about it and when I started really kind of analyzing the way the system was designed and the way that it functions and the way it's enforced is that despite all the problems for the United States, that it had numerous advantages and over the other currencies. And a lot of those other currencies had the same problems as the United States. So we're the least ugly country in the room. Yeah. And and it's kind of a silly, it's kind of a silly analogy, but it's correct. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, and it's kind of this, uh, some people say, well, that's too simplistic. And well, yeah, it is simplistic, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. And so it, it was through that work that, uh, 
led me to my dollar milkshake theory. And and in essence, the dollar milkshake theory. Let, let me like before you yeah. start. Before you start with that, let me ask you yeah. this. And it's a very simplistic question, but I think it's one that people. So okay, so we're talking about whether the dollar ultimately is strong, or why is it, or you know, or is it going to be weak? Yeah. Why does that matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. Uh, if it's weak on an overall base, on, a, on, a, on an absolute basis, then your purchasing power over time is going to fall. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that has huge implications for your savings account or your retirement account or the way you want to live in the future. You may think you have plenty of savings to live the rest of your life uh, in, in the style of, through which you've become accustomed. But if the cost of living goes up significantly in the future, you may not be able to live as well as you think you will. Mm-hmm. Now, if prices fall, then that would be good for your, you know, your savings account would increase in value. But if the value of the dollar loses time over time, value over time, then your savings may not be enough to sustain you through that time period. So that's mm-hmm. why it's important on an absolute basis. And then it's also important on a relative basis because, um, you know, that relative Prices of currencies are what drive uh, capital markets and capital markets involve things like interest rates Mm -hmm. and stock markets and real estate markets. And so, um, you know, the the flow of capital into a country or into a region typically accompanies strength of that currency. And it typically indicates, you know, a positive flow of asset prices. Okay. Uh, If all of the capital was leaving the country, then that would be bad for that those assets in that country or, or that country. So it's, it's, so it's important for both of those reasons. Got it. And, and that's really important. I think just to set the stage again, because really this whole thing is about ultimately the strength of the dollar and you know, how that affects everything else. So, you know, guys like Peter Schiff out there, uh, obviously, um, are, are saying that the dollar is about to crash because the amount of money we're printing and that gold is going to go through the roof. So why is he wrong? And this is probably, you know, ties in with explaining your uh, dollar milkshake theory. So the first thing I'd say is he's not completely wrong. He's right on part of it, but he doesn't have the whole picture, I don't think. And then the second thing is that I have said many times that I think Peter is probably as good as anybody is explaining where we're going to end up Mm -hmm. and why we're going to end up there. I just don't think he has a good understanding of the road that we're traveling to get to that ultimate destination that he has laid out. And the, again, the part of the reason I say that is because again, fiat. So he may be correct in that um, the dollar is going to lose value versus gold and gold is going to go through the roof. I happen to agree with him that over the next, you know, three to five to 10 years, gold is going to go to $5,000 and potentially much higher than that. So on that perspective, we're, we're completely in agreement. But when he says the dollar is going to zero, Maybe versus, you know, again, physical assets or gold, but versus other currencies, I think he's completely wrong. Um, in other words, versus the euro or versus the yen or versus the yuan, I think he has it completely wrong because I don't think he understands the supply-demand dynamics of the dollar versus the supply-demand dynamic, dynamics of those other currencies. Um, and the and the the advantages that the United States has and the disadvantages that those, those other countries have. Again, I think he has a very good understanding of the destination, but not the path which we follow to get there. So where does this, so tell us about the dollar milkshake theory. Yeah. So the dollar milkshake theory is, uh, 
I came up with it after watching a movie, you know, four or five years ago, this, this movie called There Will Be Blood. It was about this ruthless oil executive who just hated his competitors and would do anything to beat them. And he was trying to buy some land that had oil on it. And the, you know, his competitor wouldn't sell him the land. So he basically said, well, you know what? I own the land right next door, so I don't really need to buy it from you. I'm just going to stick a straw down. I'm going to stick a pipe down into the ground on my side of the fence, and I'm going to suck up your oil. And he said, I'm going to drink your milkshake. Um, so I don't, I don't really need to own the land. I just need to have, be able to have a straw to stick down in there. And that, and I thought about it, and that's really kind of what I think is going to happen over the next two to three years in the United States. So over the last 10 to 12 years, as I said earlier, all the central banks got together, and after the global financial crisis, they injected liquidity into the market. Now, they, you know, they call it QE. They call it you know, fiscal stimulus. There's a number of different names that they use for it, but essentially they're pumping new liquidity into the system. And my point is, is that it's not so much important who injects it. What's really important is who captures it or who sucks it up. Mm-hmm. And for from, let's call it 2009 to 2015, all the central banks were doing it in unison. But in 2016, the U.S. started raising interest rates. And so we started, rather than pushing, injecting liquidity in, we were pulling liquidity up into the United States by raising interest rates. And so, as I said, we started drinking that liquidity mm-hmm. that the rest of the world was 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 mixing. Um, now, that interest rate, the, the higher interest rates or the raising of interest rates stopped in 2019. And since then, we've actually been lowering interest rates. But on a relative basis, our interest rates are still much higher uh, than, than most of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, the, so, so while the, the, the raising of interest rates were part of the straw that would suck up that liquidity, they weren't the only component of it. There's a number of other components that I think give the United States an advantage that, that sucks that capital to the United States. The first one is that we have the, the, the biggest and the deepest capital markets. In other words, we, we, we can absorb all these flows because, because our capital markets are so big and there's so much demand for them. Uh, the second thing is, is that the dollar payment system is what is, so when you think about money traveling around the world or when you, well, if you wire money from the United States to Brazil or if Brazil wires money uh, to, to Japan, it typically flows through the channels of the dollar payment system because the dollar is the global reserve currency. We're the, we're the global superpower. We've designed the system through which banks communicate with each other. So we control that system and we can either let people access the system or we can kick them out of the system. And we've done that. There's been several times over the last, you know, couple of decades where we've kicked people out of the dollar payment system. Uh, we've done it to Russia. We've done it to Iran. We've done it to Venezuela. It's part of putting financial sanctions on other countries. And so that's a so you know the fact that we control the dollar payment system is a big part of the the, the straw. Uh, the other thing is that uh, we have relative to a lot of other countries, we have you know regulations that are pro business. Um, you know, we don't have any capital controls. If you wire money into the United States, you can send it back out. It's not the same, you know, in places like China or Venezuela or or other or Russia. The, they don't have the same capital controls, or we don't have the same con- capital controls that many other countries do. And then finally, um, and a lot of times people don't like me saying this, but but it is in fact true is that. Um, you know, the U.S. military plays a big part in this. Um, the, the U.S. military enforces the United States role as the global hegemon. And if a country does something that we don't like, there's always the military option. Now, I, d- I don't like saying that. I don't necessarily like this option. I don't like this policy that the United States uses, but it is a fact. It is, in fact, a policy that we do use. 
and it's one that needs to be taken into consideration. So that's just a few of the factors that I lead, think lead to the U.S. being the number one destination for, for global capital. And again, it really comes down to this idea that we are the you know least ugly country financially in the room. And you know, we also are the one with like the big gun, right? So, right. No, exactly. exactly. So, so all this money exactly. comes in and that creates a demand for the dollar and that yep. then therefore inflates our asset prices in the U.S. That's right. And th- there's, there, there's one other aspect too that I didn't mention, and that is um, de- debt. So when you borrow money, you're basically creating demand for those dollars in the future. You know, if you borrow money, you're getting money today, but you have to pay it back 5, 10, 15 years down the road. And so you're creating demand on a yearly basis to service that debt. And then you're creating demand for the ultimate repayment of that, of that, uh, that, that loan in years in the future. And what has happened since the global financial crisis is that the dollar debt in the world issued by countries or entities outside the United States. So Entities, corporations, companies, individuals, countries, they all issue dollar-denominated debt, even though they're not a U.S. entity. Um, and that amount of U.S. dollar debt issued by global entities has more than doubled in the last 12 years. And until the entire system changes, that is demand for dollars. So there's an incredible amount of demand for dollars, both inside the United States, because it's our currency, but then there's, there's this whole second market, the dollars that exist outside the United States, and those are called euro dollars. And there's a huge euro dollar market that is huge demand for dollars outside the United States. So we have these two markets, the domestic market and the offshore market for dollars. And the interesting thing is that the offshore market for U.S. dollars is bigger than almost any other c- currency all on its own. So if you look at the entire market for euros, um, both the onshore and offshore market for euros, it's about the same size as just the offshore market for dollars. So the point is, is that there's incredible demand for dollars, not just inside the United States, but by the rest of the world as well. So tell me, um, obviously, this this theory uh, predated the pandemic. Is the pandemic here and the crisis, is this accelerating? Um, yeah. So, well, yeah. so it's, it's really, it's, it's really kind of an interesting thing and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll walk through it slowly to, 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 to kind of lay out why that is. So we have been of the opinion that we, we were set up all the, all the conditions that were there for a crisis of, of the, of the supply demand imbalance between the supply of dollars and the demand for dollars. We knew there was an imbalance and we knew something would happen to make that imbalance kind of go out of whack even more and that the price of the dollar would, would rise very fast. And the, a pandemic is probably the last thing that we ever would have thought of to do it. But essentially what happened was when global commerce stopped and when trade stopped as a result of um, the, the COVID and, and the virus and, you know, people stopped flying and people stopped trading and ships stopped going. And mm-hmm. um, it basically also took the velocity of money or the, or the speed with which trade was taking place to zero for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Right. And so all these people that needed these dollars to pay their loans, to, 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 to buy this inventory, to, to, to whatever it was, they couldn't get the dollars anymore. So we got in March, we got into this dollar funding squeeze, uh, where the dollar appreciated, you know, six or seven percent, which is a lot for a currency. For a currency yeah. to appreciate six or seven percent over a couple of weeks, that's very big, especially when it's the global reserve currency that everybody needs. Yeah. And so 
And the antithesis of that was everybody had to sell assets in order to get the liquidity because they weren't getting it through trade. They had to sell what they had in order to get the liquidity. And that's why we saw the huge sell-off in the markets in March. And so there was this huge demand for dollars um, because the velocity of money had gone to zero. But right. what has taken place since then is then the, the central banks came in, the Fed came in, and not only did the central bank provide new liquidity and pump new money in, but there was a number of programs that were put in place to defer dollar payments. In other words, you could call your bank and say, can I, can I defer my mortgage for three months or six months right. or whatever? And they would say yes. Now, they didn't forgive those payments. You still owe them, but, but they would let you defer it for six or seven months. Same thing with rents. Same thing with, with cross-border finance. A lot of trade around the world, again, takes place in dollars. If, if Brazil trades with Japan, a lot of times that trade will take place mm -hmm. in dollars. But if you ordered, uh, let's say, a million dollars worth of inventory from a supplier in China, but they didn't actually ship it to you, well, then you're not going to pay for it either. So while in the very short term it caused a big demand for dollars, the fact that payments have been deferred at the same time that the Fed was flooding liquidity in, it gave a temporary oversupply of dollars. So you've seen the supply of dollars fall or, or you've seen the price of dollars fall back over the last three or four months. But our argument is that as soon as trade starts happening again, as soon as these all these payments that have been deferred have to be made again, um, that you're going to see a reemergence re of this dollar shortage uh, where there's no, not going to be enough dollars to go around to meet uh, the demand. So uh, let me ask you something. Uh, uh, in, you, you were talking, uh, I, I caught part of what you were talking about with gold. I've always sort of been of the thought uh, that gold is almost sort of like the anti-dollar, right? Gold goes up, dollar, yeah. you know, they're sort of inversely uh, related but did I did I catch you right in that part of your theory is that gold and the dollar kind of go up simultaneously? And if so, how how is that possible? Yeah, so that's a great question. And so, again, I think it, it depends on if you're just looking at those two currencies, then they both can't go up together. One of them is going to rise versus the other one. But the point that I like to make as part of my theory is I think we're going to get into a place where the dollar and gold are rising together versus everything else. So if you just look at gold and the dollar, they both can't rise together. But if you if you consider all the different assets in the world and all the different mm -hmm. currencies and all the different choices, I think the two most important assets that you can own over the next call it, two to three to five years is dollars and gold. Because I think versus all the other currencies and many other asset classes, those two assets are going to perform better than anything else. Huh. And so we, and so and so you know again, it kind of depends on how you. In other words. While dollar, while gold might go up versus the dollar, I think it will go up even more versus the euro, or even more versus the yen, or the Australian dollar, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so let's let's talk about like based on this theory. And I know you've got a you know you 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 know your, your work is basically around this and your funds and stuff. Um, but at a high level, uh, what are some of the like? concepts uh, to model your portfolio or to consider in your personal portfolio? Uh, I mean, how do you, how, how do you design something yeah. like that? What are some of the big concepts? Sure. So I, th I think it's, this is, this is where it kind of gets important to lay out different time frames. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> because, I mean, that's know, a big part and, of it too. And, 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 and I always say that I, I'm going to, first of all, I'm going to tell you exactly what, how I think asset prices are going to play out over the next two to three years. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that's what I think is going to happen over the next two or three months. So in general, the, the, the milkshake theory says that the U.S. dollar is going to rise versus all other currencies over the next two or three years. The rise of the dollar is going to create chaos in the monetary system. It will create uh, a number of crises around the world where, you know, asset prices in Canada and Australia and Europe and Africa and South America will go down because the dollar will squeeze those countries. Um, and I think the flight into the dollar will mean that the liquidity comes to the United States. It goes into U.S. asset prices. So we will be able to continue to finance our treasury by the flow of capital. I think U.S. stock prices will go higher over the next couple of years. Um, I'm not sure about real estate. I think real estate, I don't think real estate is going to crash, but I don't necessarily think real estate is going to go through the roof. Um, but I think, I think what happens is we get this melt up for lack of a better word in us dollar and us asset prices. And we get this melt down in the rest of the world. Um, now I don't think that that's going to happen over the next two or three months. It could, but I, but I actually think that we were, I think we're in for another pullback in us equities. Uh, let's call it between over the next sometime over the next nine months. Um, and, uh, when that happens, you know, I think that would, or would, if we do get a second wave of COVID or whatever it is, you know, there's a number of, um, you know, when these dollar payments have to be made again, we think there's a number of people that are going to go bankrupt, et cetera, et cetera. But then at, when we get further into the crisis, when, when this starts happening on a global basis and the global capital really starts flowing to the United States out of a flight to safety, so to speak, that's when we think that we will get this melt up. Um, where the stock market will go back to its all-time highs and even higher. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I just don't think we're there right now today. So, um, so we're talking about uh, you know two or three years, um, you know, to sort of ride this out at that point, and then what would happen after that? After well, this, so after that, after that, what I think will happen, and you know, the the bottom line is that the dollar just you cannot have a, do a strong dollar for a long period of time because it literally, it just wrecks the monetary system. And, I, and I, there's, there's this, there's a whole concept that goes back to, uh, I think it was the sixties. There was an economist named Robert Triffin. And he basically said, if you have a, if you have an individual country's currency, um, who, which, which also acts as the global reserve currency that all other countries use, then at some point, and it might take a long time, but at some point, the needs of the domestic economy will come into conflict with the needs of the global economy. And this kind of goes right into the heart of Trump's Make America Great Again. You know, for, for, for the dollar to, for the monetary system to function as it does, we have had to offshore all of our manufacturing to other countries. Mm -hmm. And so we supply the dollars, they supply the goods, and that's how the whole country, the whole global monetary system works. But Trump has tried to reverse that. He wants to bring the manufacturing back. He wants us to export less and import, or he wants us to export more and import less. Well, this, this is the exact thing, the Triffin's dilemma. This is the, this is the domestic economy coming into conflict with the, with the international commodity economy or the global economy. So I think that's what's going to take. We're already there. We're kind of in it now, but I think it's going to get exacerbated over the next couple of years. And essentially, it, I think it will cause so many problems. The strong dollar will cause so many problems that they will have to do something um, to redesign the monetary system or, or, or weaken the dollar 
because the system just won't function with a really strong dollar. And so what I, I think we'll probably have like another Plaza Accord type deal, you know, back in the eighties, the dollar got really strong and a bunch of the countries got together and they artificially weakened the dollar because it was causing problems. I think something like that will happen again. Um, and I think that's when that's, I think, so the dollar will get weakened either artificially or because of a redesign of the monetary system or whatever. And I think that will be the time to then get out of the U S dollar and get out of U S assets and then go buy the international markets or the EM markets that have been beaten up as the dollar got stronger. So basically you flip it and do exactly the opposite. But I think that's a couple of years away. How do you time that though? I mean, I mean, if you're, well, it's, a hard. Farmer, it's you hard. Know? I mean, cause it's, it's very hard. Because by the time they announce like some sort of, you know, meeting that looks like the Plaza Accord, I think everybody's yeah. already there, right? Well, I think, listen, I'm, I'm not uh, arrogant enough to think that I'm going to be able to time this perfectly. But I think we're, a, I don't think we're close to that yet. And I mm -hmm. think there has to be a lot more pain before we get to something like that. And so while I'm tr in, in our separately managed accounts that we oversee for clients, we're largely trying to protect against this chaos that we see coming. Mm -hmm. But then uh, I mentioned to you that we have a private fund that we manage. And in that private fund, we're actually trying to profit from this chaos that we see coming. And the, 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 the thing is, is that most people think that, and if you, if you go around and you survey financial institutions and asset managers and currency experts, the majority, but the far majority of people believe that over the next two or three years, the dollar is going to weaken mm -hmm. because of the amount of stimulus that the Fed is providing and policies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you look at traders positioning, um, you know, people are very short the dollar. They're very long the euro. So the, the most people don't think the dollar is going to go higher over the next couple of years, partly because it just can't be allowed to happen because it creates so many problems. Right. Um, but the, but what that sets up is it sets up an opportunity to where if it does happen, you can make a lot of money because not many people think it will happen. So the odds are kind of in your favor and the pricing of these trades to do if the dollar does get strong is very much in your favor. So we've set this fund up to where if we're even a little bit right, we have the opportunity to make a lot of money. And so what we've said is that you shouldn't put your whole portfolio into this fund, but this is a way to put, you know, as an example, 5% of your portfolio into this fund. And if we're right, that 5% has the opportunity to do very well and help hedge against the rest of your portfolio in, in the chaos, or even a source of, of to make a lot of money. And if we're wrong and we lose half of it or whatever it is, well, then that must mean the rest of the world's doing fine. The other 95% of the portfolio is doing very well and more than making up for this, this hedge. Um, but, but the trades, um, the, the, the dollar trades that we're looking at, are very asymmetric. So it's, it's an opportunity to bet a little in order to make a lot. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like an insurance policy. It, you know, n nobody thinks they're going to wreck their car the next day. Nobody thinks that their house is going to burn down that night, but they have the, but they buy the insurance policy just in case it does. Right. So maybe you pay, you know, $10,000 a year in insurance on your house, but if your house burns down, they give you a million bucks to rebuild it or what, or whatever it is. And so that, that's kind of how we view this as well. Got it. So, uh, one, other question, and, and maybe our last uh, you know question on this is, what things could happen um, that would potentially uh, you know would would sort of break your theory? Like you yeah. know, what are the unexpected things that happen that you know make it so that the theory kind of is no longer possible? Right. Well, there's a couple things that could happen in the show. Well, there's a couple. Of, number one, the theory could be delayed. 
Um, in other words, I think it'll play out over the next two or three years. What is possible, and again, this isn't my base case, but I can't rule it out, is that you know the Fed and the monetary authorities are able to do something over the next six months, 12 months, to push the dollar much lower, another 10% lower or something, in which case they push the problem off into the future. And then it takes another year, two years, three years for my thesis to play out again. So maybe it's possible that I'm early. Um, the, the way, the, the only way I can figure out if I'm completely wrong is if, if, the, if Trump and the treasury were to come out overnight and artificially just write down the dollar overnight and come out and say, we have, you know, Trump says, I've, I've instructed Mnuchin to do whatever he needs to do to get the dollar index from 95 to 65 over the next six months. Mm. You know, and whether they go out and they buy, they print dollars and they buy foreign currencies or they, they peg gold higher or whatever it is. In that scenario, um, our, our thesis would not play out on a currency basis. However, <laughs> the interesting thing is that in itself would cause a bunch of chaos. Yeah. You know, the, the dollar getting written down 20 or 30 percent or whatever it is, you have to remember that makes the euro go up 20 or 30 percent. It makes the yen go up 20 or 30 percent. It makes the yuan go up 20 or 30 yeah. percent. Those economies – it would be very hard for those economies to sustain a 20 or 30% rise in their currencies. So then they would have to come out and try to write down their currencies. And so in that chaos, we think we would still make some money, but it would potentially derail the overall thesis that I have as far as, uh, as far as a whole uh, milkshake. Right. Right. So like an all out currency war. Yeah. 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 Well, listen, this has been uh, really useful and educational for us all. Brent, Uh, it's uh, Santiago, capital in San Francisco, um, investors need to be, uh, uh, they need to have a net worth of over uh, $2 million to participate. That doesn't mean that's your investment, but that's your net worth. Um, how do, how do people get, uh, get in touch with you if they're interested in potentially participating in your fund? Sure. Well, if you just go to Brent at Santiago com, or you send me an email, Brent at Santiago com. Uh, I also have a website. It's just a basic website. It just has my contact information, but it's Santiago com. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, Santiago AU fund, uh, is, is my handle. Uh, but if you just type in Santiago capital, you'll, you'll probably find me. I'm pretty active on there. Um, again, and I'm happy to share my contact info with you. And if any of your listeners contact you, feel free to forward yeah, them on to me. I will absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, you know, and, and I, I always say this and I'll tell you, it's getting harder and harder to do because I get a lot of emails and phone calls and direct messages, but I do try to answer everybody. And if I, if you send me a message and I don't answer you, feel free to send another one. I'll, I will eventually get to it. I won't ignore you forever. <laughs> um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm always happy to try to help people. That's great. Fantastic, Brent. And uh, again, thanks for coming on the show. And, uh, and uh, hopefully we can, you know, have you on again sometime as, as this thing plays out in the next few years. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And uh, I appreciate uh, you guys taking the time to hear my thoughts. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Like I said, I love macroeconomics. So interesting, right? The funny thing is that all these series, these theories you know, they, they seem to make sense when you listen to them, right? You, you listen to these guys who are some of these Austrian economists uh, with their shows, their gold guys and the doom and gloom guys and everybody just, they just seem like they make sense. But the tricky part is sometimes they directly contradict one another. So obviously somebody's right, somebody's wrong. Brett's really good though, I will say about, um, you know, admitting that they're 
you know, this is a sort of a probabilities game and likelihood. If you're right, you know, more often than you are wrong, you're likely going to win. So it is important, I think, uh, to understand that it is a social science, as they, as they call it. And, um, you know, getting some working knowledge of, of these theories is really important. I think, like I said, there's a lot of intellectual power in this listenership of Wealth Formulas community. I think you can make some really good uh, decisions about what you want to do um, based on hearing different things. Um, you know, in that way, and I'll, it may not seem like uh, much, but even if you're wrong and you lose money, you can feel good that you at least thought about it and say, hey, this is why I did what I did. I didn't lose money just because, you know, somebody told me to do something and I believed them. Uh, I would love to know what you think. Um, shoot me an email, buck at wealthformula.com. Uh, in the meantime, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.